the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. There are books, and then there are timely books, and then there are eerily timely books. I hold in my hand General H.R. McMaster's Battlegrounds, the fight to defend the free world. He joins me now. Good morning, General. Are you up at Stanford this morning? Hey, good morning, Hugh. I am. Good to see you. Well, thank you for joining me. I, I found... We began setting this up six weeks ago, so people should understand, before Putin invaded Ukraine, I was reading about Russian New Generation Warfare from 2014. Is the playbook the same, General McMaster, as I think you describe it here in Battlegrounds? It looks awfully like 2014 all over again. Yeah, it does, Hugh. I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, this is the, this is Putin's playbook, is, I think of it as the four Ds, right? Disrupt whether it's with cyber attacks or the threat of a conventional attack like we've seen and the coercion of Ukraine with really an effective blockade even on the southern coast as he's massing forces around uh, Ukraine. And then disinformation is the second D of the four Ds with you know, cyber-enabled information warfare against us to diminish our will. What he wants is disunity between the U.S. and Europe, disunity within our own societies. Uh, and then what, we, what he wants to achieve is denial, the third D. He uses implausible deniability, this kind of crazy speech given Monday night in which he's trying to pose, you know, uh, uh, trying to trying to pose this idea that Europe and the U.S. and are the aggressors, right? The Ukrainians are the aggressors. The suggestion of you know, genocide in, 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 in Donetsk and Luhansk is, is ridiculous. It's implausible deniability, really, what it is. And then the fourth D is dependence, right? He wants he wants Europe dependent on him so he can coerce Europe and he can make sure that any response to his aggression is tepid. And this is especially you know, with oil and gas, you know, Germany in particular gets 50 percent of its natural gas from from, uh, from Russia and and 41 percent of its oil. And Germany can't keep the lights on now because of, of a ridiculous energy policy. So so it's the four D's in action. Uh, but, you know, I think we're doing OK so far, Hugh, in terms of the response. There's a lot more we could do, I think. But um, but it's, I think it's clear from this speech on, and this kind of theater right with this cabinet on on Monday night that Putin's determined to continue this this offensive action. And, and I think it's on the cusp of starting a major war in Europe. Now, General, let's pause for a moment on the adequacy of our response. I've had Senator Cotton on this morning, Congressman Gallagher on the Senate and House Intelligence Committee, respectively. They believe it's too little too late and that especially the oligarchs have to be expelled from the West. Do you agree with that, that there are there's the Navalny 25 Gallagher tells me I think there are 300 oligarchs running around Great Britain what do you think we ought to do with these people who might have influence in Russia reaching up to the tyrant? I, th I think it's a good idea to sanction them because these are people who really stripped 
uh, the the uh, the Russian economy uh, in, in the 90s, and especially after Putin came to, to power. These people are often called Putin's wallet, right? These are the people that that he goes to uh, to maintain power. It's really Hugh. It's, I think it's it's kind of a it's kind of a protection racket with these people. He's Putin has dirt on everybody, so he keeps them from killing each other. He keeps the corrupt system going, and he stays in power. You know, some people think you know Putin might be the richest guy in the world. You know, the, the estimates are that it's, it's at least you know two hundred and twenty-one billion dollars in his in his pocket. But you know, the, the money he's got is, is based mainly on on handshakes. So it, it, it depends on him staying in power. So what you see is a Vladimir Putin who's desperate to stay in power, desperate to keep his ill-gotten gains, uh, and and I think by sanctioning those around him, you might start raising doubts among them. Hey, is it worth having this guy around? He's already been around for twenty-one years. He extended his rule till twenty thirty-five. Should we let him do that and destroy the country? You know, real wages in Russia have been going down for the last eight years, Hugh. Right? When do people get tired of that? Now, he's got a lot of reserves built up. He's got probably $640 billion in reserves because of the ATM machine of his, of his oil and gas exports. Uh, but, but I'll tell you, it, it's not looking good for the Russian economy. And I think it's clear now that, that we need a concerted response to encourage Russians to make a choice. This guy is not good for them. He's dangerous for the whole world. If they, if the Great Brits and, and America list the 250 top Russians who are about to be expelled and said, we're, we've gone three, now we're going to do another three every day until you stop. Doesn't that generate some more specific pressure than the generalized swift banking and, and banking? Those are dissipated as they move down the the food chain and up towards Putin. But if you go after the oligarchs, those are sharp. Those are sharp blades at people close to him. Yeah, they, they are. And, you know, we've, we, we have already put many of these sanctions in place. But with these sanctions, they have to be maintained, right? Because if you sanction individuals and their companies, you know, they, they spin off a little shell company and they, they adapt to it over time. So I think the renewed effort on this is good. And I think also the multinational effort. And, you know, I think if, if the Biden administration has done anything well, I think it is to get as much as they can out of our European friends and partners so that there's a, a unified response. And one of the things Putin wants more than anything is disunity. And there's been a fair bit of that, you know, with President Macron going there, maybe making some promises and, you know, on the part of the Ukrainians, which he has no power to do. Uh, Germany's response was, was tepid, especially because of their dependence on, on Russian oil. But overall, it's been pretty good in terms of the unified results. So I, I think I think that that's that, that we're in good we're in good shape uh, in terms of the uni unity of effort. And I think we're going to continue to see, you know, an emphasis on making sure we can all work together. Now, General, in Battleground, you trace the 2014 invasion that Putin orchestrated through his little green men to the decision by President Obama to do nothing after the red line was crossed. How much do you consider Putin's actions this week to be connected to our collapse in Afghanistan last year. Absolutely connected. Absolutely connected, Hugh. And you're right. In battlegrounds, I draw this line. I, I really see it clearly you know, between the unenforced red line in Syria, 2013, 2014, after Assad commits mass murder of hundreds of people, including hundreds of children, and, and the inviting of Russia into Syria right, to enable the serial episodes of mass homicide which are the Syrian civil war, that allowed Putin to not only extend his influence in the Middle East, not only to, to, to enable Iran there as, as well, but also to create a migrant crisis, which he's using to weaken European resolve. So what he does, he creates this migrant crisis, 
Then what he does is he supports a lot of the nativist parties and tries to polarize European societies like he does with us too, pick communities against each other and weaken their resolve. You know, Putin plays a great game. He plays a strong man, but he doesn't have a lot of resources, Hugh. His, his economy is the size of Italy's economy. And so what, he, what his theory of victory is he can drag everybody else down and he'll be the last man standing. I think he saw weakness, obviously, in our surrender to a terrorist organization. I don't know how else you, what else you call it uh, in Afghanistan and retreat there. And what he's doing is he's acting on that perception of weakness with renewed uh, aggression, renewed offensive against against Ukraine. I think Xi Jinping is also emboldened uh, because of this. And we're likely to see, I think, you know, the uh, Xi Jinping become even more aggressive in the South China Sea uh, and, and, and against Taiwan as well. Now, General, will you speak to the problem we have in the American media? Whenever you say something like he's played his hand well or what President Trump did very inartfully yesterday, the media in America is more interested in attacking Republicans and trying to make it look like a recognition of Putin's evil genius is an applause of Putin's evil genius. Now, Fiona Hill wrote, Mr. Putin, you quote her on page 29, Putin thinks, plans, and acts strategically and that is that's not any different. We're not praising him. But why is the American media fixated on the fact that the recognition of his malign abilities is not it's not the same as saying way to go, Putin. It's not even close. He's a miserable, horrible character. But the American media jumps on this stuff. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know why. You know, it's, this is something we all come together behind. Right. Yes. I mean, this is. You know, this is this is clear. We have we have to remember fourteen thousand people already already died in in Ukraine, uh, and and uh, and and the people in, in the eastern part have suffered tremendously. You know, Ukraine is is actually being punished a lot more than Russia is being punished right now uh, because of the effect on trade and investment. And this is what I would like to see more of. You is more support, right? As we even as we you know we recognize the you know the this you know the effectiveness of Russia's aggression. We also should recognize, hey, when he meets stiff resistance, he stops, right, and and pulls back. I think an example of this is in Syria in, in uh, February of 2018. A lot yes. of people forget this. Russian mercenaries, on, I tell the story in Battlegrounds, you know, they, they attacked our special our special forces uh, and, and the Syrian uh, democratic forces in, in, in Syria. Why? They did it because they were sitting on the Conoco oil facility. And you know what Russia needs? Russia needs that oil to help reconstruct the country they helped to destroy in, 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 uh, in, in Syria. And so they attacked with this Wagner group. We killed over, over 200, uh, 200 Russians. What did the Russians do? They didn't say anything. They did everything they could to hide the casualties. So I think while Putin is posturing, you know, I think that the, the fact that the Ukrainians are much better at defending themselves now uh, and, and the support that we've given them, hopefully will be enough to deter a continued, a continued offensive against Ukrainians. But I'll tell you, as I look at it, I look at what they're doing. You know, we've seen the reports of, you know, field hospitals and blood banks and everything. I think he's, he's getting ready to, to, to renew the offensive and, and, and to, you know, to go even more deeply into Ukraine. Uh, General, shock and awe may be coming. The prime minister of Australia warned last night within the next 24 hours. Shock and awe did not reduce Saddam's militants to hiding. They just regrouped and came back. Will shock and awe, in your opinion, work against the Ukrainian defense forces and shatter their ability to resist and lead to the quick capitulation of the country? You know, it, it could lead to tactical gains. So what we're talking about really is what we in the military, joint operations, right? This is air, land, sea operations aimed to strike you know, targets in depth 
and then to follow rapidly with with the ground offensive operations. That's what we want to achieve, a speed of action. And what you will try to gain here is, is more than physical destruction. You, what you want to war is you want to you want a psychological advantage, right? That that allows you to achieve a, a lopsided outcome in battle. But you know, Hugh, war is we have to still remember this. War's politics, right? It's like the Geico commercial. Everybody remembers, everybody says that, right? Everybody knows that. Right? That's what Klauswitz said. But yeah. what that means is that you have to be able to consolidate gains to get to a sustainable political outcome. And the Ukrainians, I'll tell you, are, are not willing to accept you know, a, a puppet government. They're not willing to give up their sovereignty. And you, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, Putin has done more to strengthen Ukrainian nationalism <laughs> than anybody ever has in the, in, in the past. And Ukrainians, as you can see from the reporting there, are really rallying behind Zelensky. You know, this narrative of, you know, that, that uh, you know, the Putin's going after Russian speakers. Hey, Zelensky's a Russian speaker. You know, the president's a Russian speaker. So I think Ukrainians are rallying. They're doing the best they can. They deserve our support. I think, uh, I'll tell you, Hugh, I think our, our military support in terms of accelerating defensive capabilities to the Ukrainians was pretty weak in the beginning. It actually took the it took the it took the Brits you know, to, to do it first. But now now we're doing it. I, and, and, and others are as well. The Baltic states. And, you know, I, I think this is a little bit like 1973, you know, when 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 Israel was under duress, you know, from the Arab coalition. Uh, and and we, we flew in a tremendous amount of support that uh, that helped the, the Israelis defend themselves. Yeah, Nixon said, send everything that can fly. And I hope we're doing the same thing. Before the break, I do want to ask you if you see, you detail that the Internet Research Agency, which is Russia's bot farm, it's it's, it's Internet warrior arm, they had at least 109 Twitter accounts masquerading as news organizations. Do you see the same thing right now, General McMaster? Are they up to the same level of malevolence online? Yes, they are. It's really peaked. You can see the, the, the efforts at disinformation and propaganda. Uh, really, they're maxing it out, right? So they're on social media, right? They're on, they're on TikTok now. You know, one example, Hugh, that I saw just a couple of days ago were, were these rockets impacting in high-rise apartments, right, in, in, the, in, the, in the eastern provinces of Ukraine, the ones that are illegally occupied, you know, by, you know, by Russian proxies. Hey, well, the, the, that was from that was Russian attacks in, in 2014, but they're recycling it, trying to show it like it's now to reinforce this false Putin narrative of, you know, of genocide you know, in, in, in the eastern provinces. So I, I think, you know, I think we're going to see more and more of this. I'm coming right back with General McMaster. His book, Battlegrounds, could not be more timely. Uh, we're going to talk about China, Iran, North Korea and more. But as to the Russian new generation warfare, you've got to read Battlegrounds. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined by General, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. His new book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, could not be more timely. I also read, to prepare for this dereliction of duty, General McMaster's first and epic history of the Vietnam conflict under Presidents Johnson and and Defense Secretary McNamara. I'll come to that after the break, but I want to go, General, if I could. I want to jump over China. I'm going to come back to China. In Battlegrounds, you do Russia, China, and then you get to Iran. But I want to jump to Iran right now because it looks like, and Senator Cotton is afraid, that we are going to find ourselves with a new JCPOA in the middle of Putin's invasion of Russia in an attempt by the Biden administration to keep down the price of oil. What would you make of the strategic implications of a new JCPOA as described in the press right now? Hugh, 
Tom Cotton's right about this. <laughs> you know, we're what we're doing right now is we are supplicating to the Iranians. And you mentioned, you know, the the perception of weakness associated uh, with you know with the surrender and withdrawal from Afghanistan. That's magnified by what we're doing with the Iranians. Yes. So the Iranians have been stepping up their proxy war uh, in, in Iran and, and, and I mean in Iraq. They they try to kill the prime minister of Iraq, you know, with, with drones. You know, they're intensifying their proxy war in in Syria uh, to assist Assad in again these serial episodes of mass homicide. But what they're really trying to do, Hugh, is put a proxy army on the border of Israel. And ultimately, they, they, they aim to destroy Israel. They say it. We have to listen to them. Houthi rebels in Yemen are firing rockets at the United Arab Emirates uh, and into Saudi Arabia. And while they're doing that, we're over in this negotiation situation with them where we don't even get the privilege of talking to them directly. We have the Europeans supplicating for us to the Iranians, and they're demanding more and more concessions. We're giving more and more concessions. The deputy negotiator, Hugh, just resigned. He couldn't stomach it anymore. And this is this is a, a Biden administration appointee. And what we're going to get is another weak agreement. And what's significant about it, we, we were asking about is the strategic implications is it's going to allow them to continue their, their, their missile and, and their nuclear programs because their verification regime will be too weak to ensure that they're not it's just going to give them cover for that. I mean, do you really believe the supreme leader of Iran? Do you really believe the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps? And then the other part problem is the sanctions relief you is going to give them an influx of resources that they're going to use to intensify their proxy war further and to extend the, the, the you know this theocratic dictatorship's grip on power because the beneficial owners of the companies that are going to get these profits from relaxed sanctions are the bunyads, which are these these conglomerates that 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 really are, are the are you know, are the kids oftentimes of the most senior officials. So you know it, it's it's a it's going to be a, a disaster. It's a political disaster. It's going to be a political disaster masquerading as a diplomatic triumph, just like the first JCPOA was. Well, that will be exposed, I think, quickly. But the overriding concept of battlegrounds is strategic narcissism, and I believe negotiating with the Iranians right now is peak strategic narcissism. And we've got, Wendy, what else do you want from the United States? Sherman over there negotiating, as she did in 94 with North Korea, as she did with the first JCPOA, as she's doing now with Iran. Strategic narcissism is the projection, if I'm correct, General, correct me, obviously you use the term, the projection onto our enemies of our values and uh, means and ends. And they're just not the same. They're not the same. And and the point the point that I, I make at Battlegrounds is, hey, we, we have to pay more attention uh, to the ideology, the aspirations and the emotions that drive and constrain the other. We, the other. Because if we don't, as you're, as you're mentioning, right, strategic narcissism is is what makes us vulnerable to a whole, a whole range of cognitive traps. You're talking about mirror imaging, but also optimism bias. Right. And yes. And uh, you know, which was, <laughs> and, and uh, confirmation bias. I mean, hey, the, the, you know, the, the Iranian regime is still driven by the ideology of the revolution. And what they are determined to do is to, is to fight against the great Satan, us, the little Satan, which they call, they call the UK, but they call Israel the cancerous boil. Who, they, they want to wipe off the, the face of the earth. Now, should a regime like that have the most destructive weapons on earth? No, but the JCPO is not going to prevent them from getting it. It's not. And so I, I think, Hugh, what we're going to see if I make a prediction here is that this will be if it is, if there is an agreement, it'll be an extremely weak agreement. Now, now General, that, is, I, I'm tethering the ideology of a regime from the regime is is a strategic mistake. I just want to know if I, Iran has a Shiite 
end times ideology. China is Leninist. North Korea is the extreme cult of devotion to the leader. Does Russia have an ideology or is it just Putin? Yeah, it's it's I, I would say it's a nationalist ideology that is grounded in the sense of honor lost at the end of the of the Soviet Union and then the failures of the reforms in the 1990s. Now, what what Russian leaders want to do is they want to blame us for that. They want to blame us uh, us for, you know, for the criminals who stripped out their economy uh, as they tr- as they transition to this really, you know, kleptocracy uh, out of out of the communist system. And and uh, and so the ideology is is a sense of of uh, of being dishonored and, and victimized by an avaricious kind of west, right? And and uh, and Putin has stoked that as best as he can. And what he's what he's trying to do, it's not to the extent that you see in China with the Great Firewall, but he wants to dominate, dominate the, all, all platforms of communication and information. You've seen how your fellow journalists have been persecuted and murdered uh, in 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 uh, in Russia, uh, and and how the state television has become the platform for this disinformation. It's really interesting, you know, in the, in the provinces that surround... Hold that Ukraine, thought, General. We're going to come back after the break and continue. Don't go anywhere, America. We're going to get to China after the break. The interview continues now with General H.R. McMaster's brand new book, Battlegrounds, The Right to Defend the Free World is in My Hands, as is Dereliction of Duty, his first book, which is as necessary as ever. General, we went to break. You were talking about the ideology that Putin is deploying in the so-called independent regions, which aren't independent. They're simply occupied now. Absolutely. And, you know, you know the, I use this as an epigraph in Battlegrounds. It's the great Orwell quote, right, that he who controls the past controls the future, and he who controls the, the present controls the past. And what you see with Russia is the stoking of Russian nationalism that really evokes the czarist period, you know, more than the more than the Soviet period. And you know, this this kind of rambling speech that he gave about Ukraine on on, on Monday night is is augmenting this six thousand word essay that he published at the end of last year, which is the manipulation of history. And and, uh, and 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 comes up with this myth that, you know, Lenin, Lenin created Ukraine. It didn't really exist. It was part of you know, greater Russia until Lenin created it. And so then he, he goes and, and he, then he talks next about about how the Ukrainians have engaged in decommunization right of Ukraine. So he's saying, OK, if you want decommunization, I'm going to give it to you. Because really, he, what he's threatening is the the elimination of Ukraine as, as a state. So both, you know, Xi Jinping in China and Putin in Russia are masters uh, at, at manipulating history, and th- this is what we're seeing him doing. So the ideology is a, it's kind of a jingoistic nationalist ideology, Hugh, but it's based based on historical myth and and fiction. Well, it reminds me of Hitler running up to uh, Munich and the stab in the back theory that always motivated the Nazis. It was a distortion of history. It was an obliteration of the Kaiser's role. It was a complete rewrite to justify whatever he wanted to do. And we're watching that now. But let's jump to China, because battlegrounds, you begin with Russia, then you go to China for the longest segment. Then you go to Afghanistan, Iran, North Korea and some other challenges. But it is Xi. And I don't want to uh, originally if we'd done this interview three weeks ago and Russia was still building up and fainting, we talked exclusively about Xi. So now let's go to Xi. What is Xi thinking right now as he watches this unfold, General, in your opinion? Well, he's thinking he has a tremendous opportunity. Uh, Xi Jinping, I think, is increasingly under pressure, and and he's thinking that he has a narrow window of opportunity to act while the, the United States appears weak and preoccupied. 
Why does he feel the pressure? Well, he's got a lot of economic problems, Hugh. You know, the, they created tremendous frailties in their economy uh, in the effort to surpass the United States and to, and to, and to you know, export their authoritarian mercantilist model. And, and those, are, those are coming home. I mean, it was slower economic growth. And remember, you know, one of the mechanisms that he's using to maintain control is the promise, right, of, of, of improved living standards within, within China. He, he also, I think, besides the frailties that we've seen, like in the real estate market, is really worried about losing control. And you see the party extending and tightening its, its exclusive grip on power, trying to use the cover of COVID and the Olympics to perfect its technologically enabled Orwellian police state. Uh, you see him accelerating the campaign of genocide in Xinjiang, extending, you know, it, it, you know extinguishing human freedom uh, in more and more purges in the party, going after certain sectors of the economy, right? You saw him, what he did to the tech sector, you know, and Jack Ma, I think he saw what Jack Dorsey you know, and, and, uh, and Mark Zuckerberg did to Donald Trump and said, hey, Jack Ma's not going to do that to me. You know, and, and, and he's, he did the same thing with the education sector, the healthcare sectors in his sites, the tech sector broadly, as I mentioned. So he's not secure, but he also senses U.S. weakness. And, you know, Hugh, a story that wasn't really covered very, very much is he's repainting many of his naval vessels in Coast Guard colors. And I think the next moves in the South China Sea. And he's going to start patrolling those islands that he built there uh, and say, hey, listen, I own this part of the ocean, a part of the ocean through which one third of the world's surface trade flows. So I think we're in for a series of aggressive actions by Xi Jinping now that the Olympics are over. And then the next, I think, big kind of point to watch is the Communist Party Congress this November. And I think after that is the point of maximum danger for Taiwan. Now, General, do you think, as I do, that the Olympics were a uh, strategic loss for China in that the ratings in the West were so awful and the taint of being associated with that game so profound? It's a stink that won't get off the brand of the corporate sponsors for a long time. They were not watched. We understand China. Do you think it went like Xi planned or did it go the way we needed it to go, which was a repudiation of that regime and its tactics? No, I think it was a repudiation, and I think it was a, I think it was a, it was a blow to, to Xi Jinping. Now he and the people around him won't admit it. I mean, one of the you know one of the dangers you know for for autocracies and totalitarian regimes is you, know, you surround yourself with people who tell you what you want to hear. You know, right. so I'm sure everybody around Xi Jinping is telling him how great he is, you know, and and how wonderful his policies are, even as he's really magnifying kind of the frailties in in, in China's economy. But I would see I would like to see companies, you know, who who supplicate to the uh, to, to the Chinese Communist Party re really you know, be an object of what we call like ESG attention. Right. Environmental, social and governance. I mean, how is genocide not an ESG issue? Right. This should be an issue in, in every boardroom. And, and I think, you know, companies that have had a tepid response like the NBA, you know, like uh, you know, like other companies who have apologized for saying, oh, we're not going to use slave labor, and then the party attacks those companies, and then they, uh, and then they walk back. Even that, you know, obvious comment: who's going to try to, you know, who's going to use knowingly use slave labor? So, I think that the time is right now for companies. I think to t kind of take a Hippocratic oath, right? You know, don't help the Chinese Communist Party uh, perfect their their police state. Don't help them gain a, a differential advantage over us militarily. I mean, a lot of a lot of our pension funds, Hugh, a lot of the, the dumb money and index funds, financial flows associated with that. That's the scaffolding that holds up the Chinese economic model. And a lot of those funds are actually helping Chinese companies develop weapons to kill our grandchildren. 
and then and then finally, you know, don't you know, don't don't compromise the long term viability of your company for short term gains. Control so or kill. So right. Control or kill. They might kill our grandchildren, but they definitely want to control them. You know, Congressman Gallagher was on with me earlier today, uh, General, and he told me not to talk to you about sports, that you're an Eagles and Phillies fan and don't know much about sports. But I want to ask you about the NBA, because you're probably a 76ers fan if you're a Phillies and Eagles fan. Do you think Enos Cantor Freedom is not playing because he's aged out or because he's bad for China business? Because he's bad for China business. And it's terrible. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a sports fan. I'm from Philadelphia. I think the Sixers should pick him up. They've already got Daryl Morey there, you know, who was who created the initial the, the initial uh, yes. controversy. When so, it was so at Houston. Hey, you know, yeah. hey, bring in his Cantor Freedom there. He's got a strong voice. I love that guy. I'm telling you, I, I mean, if you haven't seen you know his long format interviews, I mean, people should watch it because you know what? He's unabashedly proud to be an American, as so many immigrants are, Hugh. And, and these days where we see so many people subjected to the curriculum of self-loathing in our universities, to have to have a recent immigrant with that strong of a voice, I think is, is powerful and, and much needed, I think, to restore our confidence in who we are as a people and, and our confidence and pride in, in our democratic principles and institutions and, and processes. General, what I appreciate about Battlegrounds is you're not settling any scores with anyone. You're simply writing out of your experience as a lieutenant general in the Army, 34 years of service, your Ph.D. from the University of North Carolina, your your first book, Dereliction of Duty. So I want to make sure people understand the the four resolutions you brought with you. I wrote about them in The Washington Post a few weeks ago to the NSC. At that time, your partner was Mike Pompeo over at CIA and Rex Tillerson at State. But you brought a certain resolve to the NSC, which has endured. I know Robert O'Brien picked up on this about improving U.S. strategic competence. And it begins in the lessons that you learned in dereliction of duty. Would you run, do you see the NSC right now operating strategically or are they caught up in a series of ad hoc improvisations, uh, the events of which began with the collapse of the Afghanistan effort? Yeah, I, Hugh, I don't know because I'm not, I'm, not I'm not in there now, but I'll tell you, I, I really think that, that – uh, the, the, the process, the NSC did not serve President Biden well, but it was right about in dereliction of duty. You know, Lyndon Johnson got the military advice he wanted. I don't think President Biden was listening to anybody anyway. He already made up his mind. Uh, but, you know, what, what, I, what I read about in Battlegrounds, what I learned from dereliction of duty, and, and it was a great gift for me, Hugh, to, to me, uh, that the Army gave me to be able to study history full time and teach at West Point and and Daryl Shadi was my was my dissertation at the University of North Carolina, where I had just great professors and a great environment. I mean, and it, but so I, you know, I, I really am a big believer in applied history. And so I thought, okay, what, now I'm in the job that McGeorge Bundy was in. What am I going to do differently? And I and I I was determined to give the president best analysis and best advice to to not tell the president what he wanted to hear. That would have been a disservice to President Trump or to any president. Now, of course, that gets you chewed up a little bit in the process, but I was at peace with that, right? I I had already decided that I was going to retire at the at the end of that uh, at, at the end of my tenure as national security advisor. But the second thing that I think was really important, uh, you know, a, a lesson one of the four lessons I highlight in, in in battlegrounds is, hey, I was going to give the president multiple options, but because I recognize he's the guy that got elected. You know, nobody elected me. Nobody elected even the secretaries of, of defense or state or anybody else in the cabinet, right? And so we owed him multiple options. And what that does is when you present multiple options, like we did on Afghanistan, you can highlight the cost and consequences of each of them. And if you remember, going back to August 2017, President Trump had took a much different decision. 
on Afghanistan that he that he was predisposed toward. And and he should get credit for that. But he sadly, he backed off on it, you know. But I think if you go back to the August 2017 speech, that was the first time, the first time, you know, in, in that long war that we had a reasoned, sustainable approach in place for that war. Uh, and sadly, I think we talked ourselves into self-defeat is what I described in Valley. Oh, my goodness. Your chapter title, A One-Year War 20 Times Over, resonates with me because I have talked to pretty much every, whether it was General Petraeus or Mc, uh, McChrystal, whether it was General Mattis, whether it's I've talked to everyone who's been running Afghanistan for 20 years. And it really was a one-year war 20 times over. And, and we were constantly announcing, as you point out, constantly announcing our withdrawal timetable, which is what? An invitation for the other side to hang on. How does that work, you? I mean, like, how does that work? I mean, if the great captains of history would come back and look at how we ran that word, they would think we're crazy or stupid or, or both. You know, how does it work to give your enemy the timeline for your withdrawal and say, oh, I'd like to negotiate a, a favorable settlement? You know, we, we stopped going after the enemy aggressively. During the Obama years, we even took the Taliban off as a designated enemy. And they're killing our soldiers. They're killing Afghan civilians. Uh, and then as we were engaged in these negotiations with these jackasses in Doha, I mean, they're, they're, they're attacking, you know, they're attacking maternity hospitals. I mean, they're gunning down infants and expected mothers. They're bombing girls' schools. And we, and we did nothing but you know, double down on our determination to withdraw at all costs. And so I think this is, this is you know, I, you know, I, call, I called us in, a, in, a, in a, another place the stain of 2021. It's going to be a long time before that stain of 2021 is effaced. Well, let me talk to you a little bit about that. What Reagan did uh, was to take the first suitable opportunity to demonstrate American strength, which was Grenada against the Cuban Soviet proxies. Do you expect that the rebuild of American credibility will have to begin, as Reagan did, patiently with a firmness at the domestic policy level matched with a refusal to be pushed around somewhere wherever Americans are in danger? Well, I, I, I hope whatever happens next, and there's, there are a lot of, I think, pot potentials for, I, I would call it cascading crises this, this year, Hugh, uh, that, that it's not at, at an exorbitant cost. And I just think of other times when we have seemed to have lost our resolve and how, how, how uh, aggressors have acted. And then, of course, you have to deal with a much bigger problem you know, at a much higher cost. And of course, June of 1950 in Korea is a great, great example, right? Yes. We, we wanted to end what we thought was, you know, a, uh, you know, an excessive commitment to South Korea. Well, that was kind of an early end, the endless war, or, or at least, you know, occupational forces there or, or, or positioning of forces in, uh, in, in South Korea. And, you know, just a couple months after the last soldier left, North Korea invades. And then we have a war that, that takes over 40,000 American lives and, and is devastating, you know, for the, for the South Koreans. So I, I do think we ha we have to make sure we don't undervalue our deterrent cap our, our deterrence, and that's capability times will, Hugh. And and I think many of our many of our adversaries think our will is about zero. You know, and, do, you, do you know? And, interesting, uh, General. Stop it. Capability times will. I like that because allegedly everyone I've ever talked to tells me I don't have any classifications. I don't have any security clearance. I haven't since 1988. Everybody tells me we have massive cyber capabilities that we can strike back at Russia and at China and at North Korea, and we have done so against North Korea. Do you think we have demonstrated them sufficiently to prove to our adversaries that we do indeed have the will to screw with them far beyond anything they can do to us? Well, as you mentioned, we, we do have the capability. Now, of course, any action you take like that in cyberspace 
you know, can escalate. So what you got, it's really important to do. And it's one of the lessons from dereliction of duty is, you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson only considered each step up the, the next, you know, each, each rung on the ladder, right? Didn't think about the whole ladder he was moving up. And, and, you know, of course, what's, what's paradoxical about it is Lyndon Johnson didn't want to go to, in, 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 to war in Vietnam, but in retrospect, every action he took looks like he was inexorably, you know, transitioning uh, the, the war in Vietnam to an, an American war. So I, I think it's important to think long term to recognize that progress in war or even diplomacy, for that matter, is never linear because of its interactive nature. That's and your so fourth big lesson, immense, right? No linear progress. Don't sell that idea because it doesn't exist. Right. It, it doesn't exist. Right. I mean, the, the enemy has a say. And this is the ultimate in strategic narcissism, you know, and and and, uh, and this is what's happened in, in Afghanistan uh, is this idea that if we disengage, it's an unmitigated good. What's striking, Hugh, and what's depressing for an historian is I don't think we can learn from even our most proximate you know, experiences. I mean, what President Biden did in, in, in this, it was part of in, in December 2011. Remember, he called President Obama from Baghdad and he said, thank you for allowing me to end this GD war. Right. Yep. OK, now when when he. When he said that, of course, you know, all of us you know, who had served in uniform and studied war, we said, well, hey, wars don't end when one party disengages. And the war was about to end a new and more dangerous phase, right? And, and what you saw is, is, the, is the return of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became ISIS, a terrorist group that took control of territory the size of Britain, conducted about 195 attacks outside of that territory, and, and then, then compelled us to go back. Uh, to enable through the, the Iraqis and through Syrian forces a, a, a long war, a war that went from you know, 2011-12 uh, all the way through 2018-19, really. And, and it's still going on, right, with the recent ra- raid you saw uh, against, uh, against the leader of ISIS in, now, in Syria. You, so, you, you just mentioned the uh, Johnson fallacy, the graduated pressure strategy, which is described in Dereliction of Duty. And I want to go to Dereliction of Duty but for do you think our sanctions approach to Russia is just a new version of graduated pressure? What Johnson and McNamara sold the American public in the early 60s? Hey, it looks a little bit like it, doesn't it? Because it you, does. had, you had you had pre, you had President Biden say, well, it was just kind of a little invasion at first. <laughs> but then he walked that back. And then uh, and now what you're hearing is, you know, well, if they do something else, you know, we'll, we'll, there'll be more consequences. You know, I think what's important with Putin, and, and this is what I wrote about in Battle Rose, is you have to impose costs on him that are beyond those that he factors in at the outset of his decision making. And as I mentioned, you know, he's done everything he, try, he, he could to, to try to insulate Russia from, you know, from sanctions uh, over the over recent years. He has he's built up reserves and so forth. But I, I think, you know, for if you if you really want to, to impose costs, you know, you, you, you block his, his access to SWIFT. And of course, that has second and third order effects on the global economy. But you could sanction Russia's central bank. That's another that's another kind of you know, uh, a, a step um, well above the, you know, going just up one step of the rung each each time he d- does something else to Ukraine. Uh, and well, of course, we have to recognize. Well, yeah, well, I so, want to close. Sorry, by... I was gonna... Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say he, he's, he's already accomplished quite a bit. He's already occupied Belarus, which we're not even talking about here. Right. So he's already right. he's already done that, and uh, and and, if, and and it's important to see what he's doing in Ukraine with with what he's doing broadly because he's not going to stop there. He's weaponized migrants on the Polish border. He's encouraging encouraging Serbian separatism in the Baltics to kind of reinflame the Baltic states. You know, he, he's threatening the you know the the uh, I mean I'm, I'm sorry in the Balkan the Balkan states. Uh, and, and he's threatening the Baltic states uh, direct, directly. So, so I, anyway, I, I think that you know, Putin's not going to be satisfied with anything in, in Ukraine. 
And, and it's important for us to, to really, I think, step up whatever whatever we can do from a sanctions perspective and not take this graduated pressure. No, we got to go to where, where we would go in the worst case scenario quickly. Now, your former colleague, Secretary Pompeo, you worked with him when he was at CIA, is going to Taiwan. Uh, and I think everyone who wants to run for president should go to Taiwan. What is your opinion, General, of what we will do if Xi lurches at Taiwan? Well, I think our message to Xi has to be, you know, hey, listen, uh, you know, every time that, uh, that China has threatened Taiwan, we have responded. So they have no reason to believe that we won't. But I think the strategy of strategic ambiguity is something to keep in place because, you know, of course, in our democracy, it's the American people who decide you know, if, you go, if you go to war or not. And, and the most urgent action, Hugh, is, is to help Taiwan defend itself. Taiwan was complacent for the first 15 years of the century. They're playing catch up. I think the, the period of maximum danger is after after the, the Chinese Communist Party Congress in November and before 2025, when a lot of the new defense capabilities that Taiwan has purchased and is integrating, as well as what the Japanese self-defense forces are, are integrating, come online. And I think what Xi Jinping, because he's under pressure domestically as well, may see this as a fleeting window of opportunity between the end of this year uh, and 2025. So we, we ought to be in a race to help Taiwan strengthen its defense capabilities. And of course, our forward position forces there are immensely important for, for deterrence as well. And this is tied to the South China Sea. I mean, look south of Taiwan. I mean, that's the land grab that he's trying to affect right there. So and I think it's helpful sometimes to turn the map 90 degrees to the left and look at where Taiwan sits and how control of Taiwan will also isolate and threaten Japan. Of course. Of course. So, General, I want to close on a dereliction of duty note. Um, the erosion of credibility in the McNamara-Johnson approach to the war was gradual. The erosion of credibility of the Biden administration has been rather rapid, and it came at, at great cost in Afghanistan, and it's now continuing in Ukraine. And I think it also crippled Dr. Fauci and our National Institute of Health director, Dr. Collin. When you lose credibility, how do you get it back? If, I mean, we have three years left of President Biden. We cannot afford an uncredible broken executive branch. I mean, I, I don't know what to do about it. I, I want him to lose the next election, but we really cannot afford three years of infirmity perceived abroad by our enemies, can we? Well, Hugh, I, I think what we've got to do is demand better from our leaders. And maybe, you know, maybe the polling numbers will will, will, will inspire a reassessment. But you know this story well. I mean, I, when I think about how bad things are today, I think I go back to the 1970s, you know, and I think it looked pretty damn bad, right? We had a we had a president resign under scandal. We had the humiliating withdrawal from 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 Vietnam. We had stagflation. We had multiple energy crises. We had a hostage crisis, and then we had a change in leadership, right? And and you know the Reagan the Reagan administration wasn't perfect, you know, but but Reagan was a leader who got to the politics of addition. He reached out to Americans who otherwise would would not have supported him, uh, and he brought Americans together. And, and reinforced, I think, our, our, our confidence in, in, our, in who we are as Americans and, and strengthened the fabric of our society. Uh, and, and we came out of it. You know, we, we, came, we came out of the 70s uh, and, and, uh, and gained strength in the 1980s. Uh, and ultimately, you know, we, we competed effectively internationally as a result of that. I remember, you know, remember when Reagan was asked, you know, what's your vision for the end of the, yeah, we uh, win. Of the Cold War? Yeah. So you know, we, we win, they lose, you know, yeah. and and so I, I and I, I think uh, I think if you go back to the speech he gave in the British Parliament, the speech he gave at the Berlin Wall, okay, I think we need a leader who can sort of project that confidence 
and bring Americans together. You know, we're getting to the politics of subtraction, Hugh, is in my view. I'm not an expert on this by any means, right? I mean, I'm a washed up general, you know, but but you know, you have I think you have both political parties kind of move into these kind of smaller tents, and a lot of Americans are left in the middle saying, Okay, hey, who's gonna you know, who's gonna lead us? You know, who's gonna bring this country together? So I think maybe if we demand that our leaders don't compromise our principles for partisan political gain. I think that's really what we ought to be about. And and uh, and, and we need leadership. I mean, I, you know, it's it sounds kind of like a trite answer, but uh, but I think I think that's what we need. Well, that leads me to my last question. Article five of NATO. Estonia has got a bunch of Russians. They're being menaced. Lithuania is being punished by Putin. China is attempting to intimidate Australia. That's not Article five. But do you believe in your heart, General McMaster, that the American people would defend the Baltics and Poland and Romania and Bulgaria, who are full-fledged members of NATO? And do you think Putin believes that we would, which is the more important question? I, I think so. And, and I, I think the reason is that, that, that uh, you know, Americans, I think, understand, have an understanding of history. And so we have to go back to and, and this is overdone, the Munich analogy. But, you know, I'll tell you, during the Olympics, you heard the, the analogy of the 1936 Olympics, right, with 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 uh, yep. with China. You know, I, I, I do think that that if you look at really what, you know, what happened at Munich and then what happened the next year. Right. You know, what we're seeing now is Putin trying to get what he wants in Ukraine. Is he going to be happy with that? He's not going to be happy with that. You know, of course, 1939 was the year that that the, that the Soviet Union and Germany divided up Poland, right? And and what's striking about what we're seeing with all these false flag operations, Hugh? I mean, it's it's almost exactly what yep. Nazi Germany was doing to to portray Poland as the aggressor. So, you know, we we I think what we Americans recognize, I hope what we recognize, is that threats to our security that develop abroad can only be dealt with at an exorbitant cost once they reach our shores. And and uh, and I think what, of course, we want to do is, more than anything is deter conflict. What what Putin is saying is is extremely irresponsible in terms of his threats of nuclear war. You know, yes. with this this uh, this stra- this strategy of escalation domination, where he's basically threatening to use nuclear weapons in Europe, and then to sue for peace on his own terms with America by you know by by posing the threat of a nuclear Armageddon. I mean, who talks like that? Do you remember even going back to 2018? Do you remember when he showed that animated video of of like of, of Russian missiles descending on what looked like kind of Mar-a-Lago in Florida? Yeah. I mean, so so I mean, this guy's not going to get better, right? He has to he has to he has to be met with strength, or he's going to pu- he's going to push to the very limits. So more more troops for Lithuania, more troops for Estonia, more Americans in in Latvia, that sort of thing, and especially Poland, well, General. Well, I, and invest more in our defense capabilities. You know, Hugh, I mean, this administration, I, I think, is going to come out with a national defense strategy that focuses almost exclusively on China. Hey, well, this ought to be instructive, right? The yeah. U.S. has global interests, and we have to be able to defend more than against one threat. And so, you know, Russia's uh, defense budget is estimated at $62 billion. I, I mean, we're only spending 3.5% of our GDP on defense, which is a, a historic low, you know, since the, since the end of World War II. What if we just increased our defense budget by $62 billion right now? And said, okay, well, Russia, what do you think of that? You know, and 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 I, and I think that we've gotten too light in our forces at times. I mean, Russia's massing armored forces, right? We have, you know, we have, you know, we go down this path of high tech a lot of times, and we talk about how forces need to be lean and nimble. But you know, Hugh, Richard Simmons is lean and nimble. You huh. don't send him to kick anybody's ass. You know no. what I mean? So you, I mean, you need, right? So you need, you know, you need forward position cable forces. We don't have any tanks in Europe. You know how? Why? why? I mean, permanently stationed in Europe. I mean, well, yeah. why? 
because we, we just got on this path. We talked ourselves into we just need to be more nifty. The but end you know of what? history. We bought the end of history, General. And your book, <laughs> Battlegrounds and Derelict, there is no end of history. There is always a tyrant. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, and peace through strength, right? Ronald Reagan had that right. And so did George Washington. You're right, General. I want to recommend to everyone, Battlegrounds is a tutorial on everything. I didn't think it was going to be as relevant as it is. It's so like today's headlines and dereliction of duty will never not be relevant because telling the truth to the American people essential at all times. General, thank you for the extended conversation. I hope when you're down in Southern California, we can get together. In the meantime, audience, dereliction of duty, but especially Battlegrounds. If you want to be smart about what the Russians are doing, go get Battlegrounds today. Thank you, General. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. Andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.